0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Girls Against God by Jenny Vall, translated by Marja Midris. At once a time-traveling horror story and a fugue-like feminist manifesto, This is a singular, genre-warping new novel from the author of the acclaimed Paradise Rot. Jenny Vall's latest novel is a radical fusion of feminist theory and experimental horror, and a unique treatise on magic, gender, and art. Girls Against God by Jenny Vall. Translated by Marjum Idris. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Why do people think about technology and computers the way that they do? That is the puzzle that Fred Turner answers in his classic book, From Counterculture to Cyberculture, Stuart Brand, The Whole Earth Network, and The Rise of Digital Utopianism. Turner writes, quote, For the marchers of the free speech movement, as for so many other Americans throughout the 1960s, computers loomed as technologies of dehumanization, of centralized bureaucracy, and the rationalization of social life, and, ultimately, of the Vietnam War. Two decades after the end of the Vietnam War and the fading of the American counterculture, Computers somehow seemed poised to bring to life the countercultural dream of empowered individualism, collaborative community, and spiritual communion. We have come to take all these meanings, at least until recently, as inevitable products of computer and information technology, as though the ideology was imminent to the technology in some inherent way. But like so many things, it only seemed inevitable in retrospect. So where does the techno-utopian ideology that has long animated our techno-dystopic world come from? The idea that the internet is a community, that the internet has liberated the individual from the shackles of the gray, hierarchical, and rigid old economy. These days, all of these ideas might seem rather absurd. They probably seem rather absurd to you given that you're listening to this podcast. But the ideology remains powerful still. And the ideas do come from somewhere, and that somewhere, surprisingly, is the 1960s counterculture and back-to-the-land commune movement. And so it's not so much that the rebellious 1960s was co-opted by corporate America and by neoliberalism, but rather that one strand of 60s youth culture, not the new left, but the anti-political counterculture, actively went on to shape and create neoliberal internet culture. This book blew my mind, changed the way I think about the world, and so did my time speaking with Fred. I'll leave my introduction at that because we get into all of the very complex, fascinating history in the interview. But before we get started, I can do the dig for a living and pay all the people who help me make it happen because those of you listeners who can afford to support us do so at patreon.com slash Dig. It's those contributions from those of you who can afford to support us that allow us to offer everything for free with no paywalled episodes. And that's very cool. It's a model that I'm really glad has worked out. I did not know it was going to work out when I tried it. So if you can afford to contribute but haven't done so yet, please contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. We have books, we have mugs, we have tote bags. But most of all, you have my gratitude for making this podcast possible. That's P A T R E O N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here is Fred Turner, a professor of communication at Stanford University, who writes and teaches about the history of media and American culture from World War II to the present. His books include The Democratic Surround, Multimedia, and American Liberalism from World War II to the Psychedelic Sixties, and from counterculture to cyberculture, Stuart Brand, The Whole Earth Network, and The Rise of Digital Utopianism. <music> Fred Turner, welcome to The Dig.
1: Oh, thanks, Dan. Very nice to be here.
0: Before we get into your book's history, let's start by explaining the world that this history explains. What was this techno-utopian political culture that took hold by the mid-1990s alongside the mass adoption of personal computers and the World Wide Web, and that remains with us in so many, 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 many ways? What was it emerging at that time, and how has it shaped our economics, politics, and society?
1: Yeah, so in the mid-1990s, that was just when the World Wide Web had come online about 1993, a strange set of assumptions had come together. You could see that the the confluence most clearly in Wired magazine, enormously popular, um, brightly colored, pseudo-psychedelic, libertarian, and available on every CEO's coffee table to signify that they were up to date. Anyhow... Inside Wired Magazine, what you could see was a coming together of countercultural idealism from the 1960s, a kind of dream that we would build societies based on shared mindsets, that we would find technologies that would enable us to connect intimately in ways that were impossible otherwise, with an intensely libertarian political ethos and a very intense profit-seeking corporate ethos. In the world of Wired Magazine, as in the world of all things digital in the late 1990s, it looked like Well-funded startups, collaborative, flexible, networked organizations would bring about a different kind of society, a new kind of society, a happier kind of society, one that would do away with bureaucracy, do away with the white-collar man, and make it possible for us to finally live complex, integrated lives where work and play were were one thing. Of course, in the Zoom era, work and play coming together (laughs) has an entirely different meaning. But at that time, digital media seemed to promise a utopian solution to the whole bureaucratic war-making history of the 20th century.
0: Let's move on to an overview of your remarkable and rather complex historical argument. How did libertarian and millenarian Internet culture emerge from, of all places, the hippie new communalist back-to-the-land movement of the 1960s, which, in turn— drew upon the cybernetic ideas and networked practices of World War II and Cold War era defense research laboratories?
1: Yeah, so that's, that's the kicker question. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to give a, a long answer. Uh, so, so let me say that when I started writing this book, I didn't expect to find the history that I did. You know, I, I had written a book right before this on how Americans remember the Vietnam War. And in that book, computers were everything that was wrong with the Cold War state. They were emblems of the kind of mechanical, military world that people seemed to be protesting. And so when I, when I finished that book, I wanted to work on something a little bit more cheerful. I thought, well, I'll work on hippies. They're awfully interesting. And, <laughs> you know, uh, what, what do I find when I go back in there? But I find, among other things, Wired Magazine with its psychedelic cover and, and, you know, people like Stuart Brand, a, a hippie in the pages of it, celebrating computers as tools of cultural change. This just made no sense to me, whatever, because during the 60s, I thought, computers were the emblem of the Cold War state. How on earth did they get to be tools of countercultural change? So that's kind of the question that I started with. And I started rummaging in the 60s, and I started, I, I sort of followed this network of people back from, from where I'd seen them in the pages of Wired, back to 1968 and, and a, a signal publication of the, of the counterculture, the Whole Earth Catalog, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. And in looking at that, I suddenly saw that there were, in fact, two countercultures. I'd always been told there was one. i have always been told that the counterculture was a single youth movement, marched against the war during the day, then partied at night, dropped acid, got up, did it again. And what I found when I started digging into the period was that actually there were two very distinct countercultures, one was the new left, uh, based more or less in Berkeley, um, came out of the free speech movement and to some degree the old left, devoted to doing politics to change politics. You know, really wanting to fight the Vietnam War, stop that, change the democratic system. There was another wing of the counterculture, though, and I really hadn't thought of them as separate until I saw that they 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 really were. They were based in San Francisco and they were much more I don't know how how to put it, maybe just lifestyle-oriented. You know, I, I ended up calling them the New Communalists because they sparked the largest wave of commune building in American history. But they really didn't want to do politics. And perhaps their most visible figure at the time was Ken Kesey of the Merry Pranksters, and, you know, in, in 1966, he was invited to a, a, a protest in Oakland. They were going to march against uh, the Vietnam War. They were going to march to a, um, a deployment place where, where Marines were being gathered, recruits were being gathered. And he got up on stage and he said, look, don't march. That's what they do. If you want to change the world, go home and live differently. And then he pulled out his harmonica and he played home, home on the range. <laughs> not what
0: they were expecting at the protest. No, not at
1: all. And, and you know, the, 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 for, the, for the lefties who had called the protest, this was going to be the great gathering of the tribes, right? It was going to be, you know, the new left and the, and the counterculture together finally to march against the war. And that vision, the vision of turning away from politics toward home and toward the technologies of the military industrial world was what was what drove the counterculture, at least that part of it, the new communalist wing of it. And it's a very different part of the counterculture. And it's that part of the counterculture that ended up shaping how we think about computing. I want to make two other points that I think are important in this regard. The first is where that part of the counterculture got its mojo I always thought, and I've been told that my book tells this story, although I, I know that it doesn't. Um, <laughs> I, I sort of thought that, you know, computers brought us, I mean, sorry, hippies brought us computers, right? That's, that's the story. That's the story Steve Jobs has always told us at Apple, and the suddenly long-haired, creative batch of people rebelled from mainstream society. Microsoft went north, but Apple stayed here, and hippies made computers. As it turns out, the counterculture, the sort of lifestyle counterculture, new communalist counterculture was deeply invested in a mode of thinking and working with technology that came from the middle of the 20th century. It came specifically from cybernetics. Cybernetics was a term cooked up by Norbert Wiener, but it was a collaborative enterprise, one of the most influential intellectual movements of the 20th century, at least in the States. And in cybernetics, computing modeled a world that was itself fundamentally made of information. The world, it was almost a Buddhist vision. The world was nothing but circulating systems of information. And what made computers so marvelous in this vision, which was, you know, first came into being around 1948, what computers did was they made it possible to see and manage this vision. For Stuart Brand and the hippies of the Whole Earth Catalog and the New Communalist Movement, the vision of a world suffused with invisible patterns made complete sense. They celebrated Norbert Wiener. They published his work. They tried to give people access to his work. And when they took LSD, the vision they were hoping to receive was a vision of a world of connected patterns, interconnected patterns. And in that sense, LSD was a lot like what computers would later become and and which Stuart Stuart Brand would actually call them. The one other piece to know from the 60s that's really important is about Buckminster Fuller. Buckminster Fuller was the man who patented the geodesic dome. Uh, Didn't invent it, but he patented it in 1952. And uh, he was the nephew of Margaret Fuller, who was the editor of The Dial, which published Emerson. So he has pretty good transcendentalist bona fides. Uh, (laughs) Buckminster Fuller wrote an article in Forbes magazine in 1942, and it traveled throughout the counterculture in the 60s in in a later collection of his essays, in which he argued that the job of saving the world depended on rebalancing the distribution of the products of industry. And what we needed in the world were what he called comprehensive designers, people who could take the technologies of mainstream industry and repurpose them, turn them toward the goal of improving their own lives. That vision of finding industrial technologies and repurposing them for your own self-improvement animated the the new communalist wing of the counterculture completely. And it's that vision, it's the fuller vision, coupled with the cybernetic vision of a world that is patterns of information, which really informed their particular style of utopianism and then made them available to and and thoughtful about computers as they came online in the 80s.
0: Let's return to chronological history starting at the beginning with cybernetics. What is it and how did Wiener develop it from his work addressing this concrete problem of figuring out how the U.S. military could better shoot down enemy aircraft during World <laughs> War II.
1: I love it. Yeah. So Norbert Wiener was quite a character. He had, um, uh, he had a huge belly and he used to, to wander around uh, MIT's campus belly first um, and poking his, his head and his belly into the, the doorways of different scientists. And he was famous for these Wiener walks. Wiener walks. Um, <laughs> he was a child genius. <laughs> You know, he had been a mathematician all his career, and during World War II, he wanted to help out. So he was given an assignment to help um, figure out how to shoot down enemy airplanes. The problem was actually kind of a complicated one. You had human beings using a weapon, the anti-aircraft gun, to shoot down an airplane that was another machine, which was in turn piloted by another human being. And with each of those elements, there was a degree of unpredictability. In order to shoot down the airplane, you had to know more or less where it was going to be in a second or two after you fired the gun. Wiener's insight was that you could model that process and predict where the aircraft would be using mathematics. It sounds hokey now. It's like, you know, so of course that's a math problem. But in that vision was the vision of mathematics as a system that could unify the human and the machine and describe the um, behavior of both equally. So the pilot and the plane, the gunner and the gun, all could be modeled as part of a system using mathematics. This vision of a system modeled through math got attached across the 1940s in a series of meetings called the Macy Conferences with people like Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson who were anthropologists and other sociologists and psychologists to a social vision of a world in which hierarchical mass society of the kind that Hitler seemed to be promoting in Germany – could be done away with, and a more egalitarian, leveled society could be born. Wiener's genius, when he created cybernetics, and the first, the first statement of cybernetics that went public was 1948, when he published his book, Cybernetics, and the second one, the one that really shook up the world, was a book called The Human Use of Human Beings from 1950. In those two books, he defined cybernetics as the science of control through communication. So using communication systems, which were fundamentally mathematical at base, to manage, monitor, and transform the social world. And the virtue of that system, in his view, was that it would be fundamentally more democratic than the hierarchical, mass-mediated, fascist style, the sort of one-to-many world of radio and cinema, because in that world, each element in the global system, each human being, each machine, would act independently, seek feedback from other elements in the system, and out of that process of independent, individual feedback-seeking, order would emerge. That order would be fundamentally more democratic because it would have emerged precisely from the efforts of many free individuals.
0: To make sense of man and machine in the same math problem, though, I th- that required reducing one of the two to the the other, and Wiener reduced humans to machines, If if I read your argument correctly.
1: Oh, absolutely. No, that's, that's exactly right. He did reduce them to the machines. But along with people like B.F. Skinner, Wiener was fundamentally, though I don't think he would describe himself this way, as a, a behavioralist. I mean, he really, I think, like many in his circle, did not necessarily think that the interior of the human being could be known, seen, understood, or worked with. What you could work with and know, at least in the problems he was working on, was the behavior of humans and machines. And since they both behaved, they could be made equivalent. The consequences of that for our idea of what it means to be human have been extreme. You know, Catherine Hales has, has written a book called How We Became Post-Human that, that addresses that problem. In its own time, though, and I want to stress this point, it was strangely a radically anti-racist idea. Now, this, I, this will sound really <laughs> strange to contemporary ears. But you've got to remember that when he's working, the pilots of these planes are, are often Japanese, and American propaganda is spewing out pictures of, you know, fanged monkeys. Japanese as totally non-human. One of the things the cybernetic vision does for the Japanese and the Americans early on, but also Germans and the Americans and sort of Americans and all of the other kinds of people that we've declared are inhuman, it levels the playing field. It says not only are people like machines, but people are like one another, even across racial difference. And that's a big move. Why
0: did cybernetics appeal in the way that it did not only to Wiener's colleagues in the military-industrial complex, researchers in places like MIT's Rad Lab, but also to Cold War America as a whole. His book was a bestseller.
1: Yeah, I know. Isn't that strange? Especially the, the, the first book, Cybernetics, is, is about 50% mathematical formulas, which are utterly unintelligible to me <laughs> and to most of my friends, and I'm, I'm perfectly capable you know, in math. And yet that book sold like crazy. I'll tell you what I think it was. I, I think that he managed to offer Americans— a vision of a kind of technocratic, scientific, technology-driven order, social order, that would free them, as it seemed to have by the end of World War II, from the threat of fascism, from the threat of hierarchical domination, and give them entree into a world in which, as people wrote at the time, their intellectual abilities would be enhanced, their freedom to move would be enhanced, they would become more independent, more individuated, Thanks in part to their engagement with and resemblance to technology. And that's quite a vision. And I think it was very attractive. To understand the full attraction, though, you've got to remember where America was just seven or eight years before Wiener started publishing these, these works. In the 30s, we were at best a second world country. We had no we had no highway system that stretched across the country. Culturally, we, were, we saw ourselves as entirely second rate um, behind the French and the Germans. World War II seemed to offer a vision that, of an America that was actually the kind of America we would know in the 50s and 60s, a world power, a world power grounded in the defense of democracy. Cybernetics seemed to be a theory of how we could organize the world using the technologies with which we had won the war to make it more democratic, make it more humane. It was deeply congruent with the ideas of universal humanism that circulated at the time.
0: And where everything looked like either Epcot Center or the DC Metro. <laughs>
1: I think that's unfair. <laughs> I, think, I, th- I think that's unfair. You know, I, I, think, I think, you know, one of the things that I discovered, I, I did a prequel to the book we're talking about today. The, the prequel is called The Democratic Surround, and it's about the 40s and the 50s. And One of the things that I really was surprised by when I went back into that period was how beautiful they mm-hmm. were. If you haven't looked at Ray and Charles Eames movies lately, you should. You know, you probably know that the Eames chair, the famous leather chair with the, the wooden back, but the Eames made beautiful movies using cybernetic theory. And, you know, a, a lot of the kind of style of the 50s that, that we admire, the, the sort of high modern style, is anchored in understandings of the world born in cybernetics.
0: Well, you write that Fuller believed that information systems would allow for the efficient coordination of production, distribution consumption. And that's something that socialists, including famously Salvador Allende's government in Chile, have looked to cybernetics for. On the other hand, though, the notion that order naturally emerges from this massively decentralized but interconnected interconnected system also proved quite congenial to Friedrich Hayek. Is there an inherent politics to cybernetic or is it a sort of contested terrain?
1: I think it's a contested terrain, and people have tried to use it different ways. For my own part, I, I take the Hayek connection very seriously. I, I presented a paper on um, cybernetic aesthetics and Hayek at a at a conference in Germany, and I, I thought they were going to throw me out of the room because the the vision of cybernetics and the vision of John Cage, who is very invested in a similar aesthetic, the musician, yeah, the musician John Cage, yeah, is is a is one of kind of liberatory bohemian freedom in a a lot of ways, even cybernetics. And Hayek, of course, is the demon of of tales of neoliberalism. And what you see when you go back there is how utterly similar their visions are formally. You know, Hayek's marketplace is is a bounded region in which individuals mark themselves and their desires with prices and then get feedback from one another in terms of buying and selling. That's Norbert Wiener's vision in a nutshell transformed into the vision of a marketplace. I, I think the vision is still open to interpretation, but the way that it's worked out in the United States over the last 60 years has brought us, I think, to a kind of authoritarian condition, very much the opposite of what Wiener was hoping for.
0: As you mentioned at the top of the show, initially the student movement of the 1960s identified universities and the information they generated as keynotes in this larger military industrial complex that, quote, modeled the hierarchical world of Cold War corporate adulthood for which many feared they were being trained. What was that social order? And what was the critique launched by students and by thinkers like C. Wright Mills, Herbert Marcuse, and Lewis Mumford? Why was the computer at that time this emblem of a gray, violent, alienating, human subject fragmenting cybernetic dystopia?
1: It was a bad time. (laughs) (laughs) you'll remember that by the early 1960s, we had discovered the atom bomb and dropped it. We had seen thousands and thousands, millions of people die. We had seen millions die in World War II. We had gone off to war in Korea. And we were pretty soon about to go into war in in Vietnam. Draft was was ongoing. And I think that the, the children of the early 1960s faced a weird conundrum. On the one hand, they looked to adults around them and they saw men and women in suits, these sort of white-collar beings who seemed to be psychologically super-constrained. They seemed to be buttoned down. They seemed to not know themselves. They seemed to be almost cogs in these great mechanical social systems. What's more, they seemed to be sending society toward war and the possibility of mass death through nuclear weapons. Who would want to be a part of that? But there was another piece to their lives that I, I find really compelling, the, the children who came of age in the 1960s were, were people who had grown up with all of the benefits of the post-war commercial expansion. So they were the, the beneficiaries of Eisenhower's build-out of the highway system. They were able to cruise in these automobiles that were relatively cheap. They were able to get small stereos and listen to music. And, you know, by 1964, 5, 6, they were able to get LSD. All of those things were produced by the same industrial complex that they didn't want to grow up and be a part of. And I think that many folks, certainly Stuart Brand, Ken Kesey, folks like that, resolved this tension between on the one hand, not wanting to be part of this massive repressed adult technocracy that they seem to be growing up into, but at the same time, not wanting to let go of the pleasurable technologies that technocracy had produced like automobiles and drugs and music, electronic music. And I think they solved that problem In a lot of ways, by turning towards small-scale technologies, reimagining them in the ways that Fuller had suggested they should, and turning them into tools with which they could imagine they were connecting to the deep streams of invisible information, structuring pattern that Norbert Wiener had said were were central to to the globe. So I think that's what they were doing.
0: A major problem with understanding this era, as as you mentioned earlier, is this still very commonplace conflation of the new left and the counterculture, and the two could not be more different. I think many Jacobin readers and Dig listeners would have found themselves on one side of that divide rather than the other, even if they occasionally took acid after a protest. I mean, there, there was there was the new left, and then there was were these hippie back-to-the-landers, what you call the new communalists, and they... By the early 1970s, there were an estimated 750,000 people living on more than 10,000 communes. Why did they reject politics and what did they intend to build instead? And then how did they believe what they were trying to build could be built?
1: Isn't it amazing just to think about that for a minute? Three quarters of a million Americans heading back to the land 10,000 communes. You know, if you talk to men and women of a certain generation here in California, they will literally point to places in the hills and say, yeah, that's where our commune was, right over there. I I can stand on the campus at Stanford and people will point up the hills and say, yeah, there used to be a commune up there. It's amazing to me. It's simply incredible. And and there's a generation of folks, particularly in the tech world, who've come through the commune world, you know, the the most famous of which is probably Steve Jobs, who was on a commune called, I think it's called the All One commune. Hmm, I'm going to have to remember that.
0: And who dropped out of my alma mater.
1: Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, so so the, the the new communalists were were a fascinating bunch. I think they they I'm not sure why they turned away from politics particularly. I know that they did not, as a rule, believe that politics was the best way to change the world. You know, it's like Ken Kesey said, that's what they do. To do politics among the commune folks that I've talked with was to essentially repeat a kind of structure, to rebuild the kind of structure which was exactly the thing they were trying to escape. It was to become like their parents. You know, folks on the new left, um, I'm thinking now of the founders of Students for a Democratic Society, they believed that forming parties, writing manifestos, marching, all the things that you do to do politics would in fact reform America and that they would make America more democratic and, and de- democracy itself would be a representative process anchored in institutions, just changed institutions. The the new communalists, on the other hand, really distrusted institutions entirely. They trusted personal experience. And when they headed back to the land, they hoped to build societies organized, not around politics, very particularly not around bureaucracy or rules, but around shared consciousness. They bought into Norbert Wiener's vision, Buckminster Fuller's vision, and transformed it into a kind of alternative to politics. In this vision, you would build a commune, you would get together, you would ostensibly kind of share your mind, share your vibes, you would drop acid to be able to see the same vibes. Now, one of the reasons I got excited in this project when I was researching it in the beginning was I thought, oh, great, I spent all this time looking at the Vietnam War, and now I, you know, I, I'll look at hippies and I'll go to these communes and it'll be really friendly and nice. And lo and behold, um, you know the, the communes turn out to be just as bad as suburban America. So the communes turn out to be places where it's kind of rule by cool. You take away bureaucratic regulation and you no longer have a, a way to negotiate the distribution of resources. What you have is mostly male leaders saying things like, oh, ma'am, you, know, you don't want to share your inheritance? That's just uncool. That's just uncool. <laughs> and you know, I had this sort of revelation where I was talking with Lois Brand, who was Stuart Brand's wife in, in the 60s, And she said, yeah, we used to go to these communes and Stuart would go to the the main room and and talk about, quote, important things. While me and the women, we'd go to the back room and put bleach in the water to keep people from getting sick. And, you know, I I can't tell you the number of pictures I've seen from the communes of, you know, hippie ladies with long flowing hair, bare feet, pregnant, or carrying loaves of bread. I mean, it's a place where the kind of most... um, heterosocial norms of the suburbs were replicated. Let me also say they were places that tended to be racially segregated. I I don't think anyone would have said, oh, we don't have black people here. And yet I think they would have said, you know, I don't know, it's a little bit different, right? I mean, it's just easier to work with people like yourself. And and I've actually heard that actual phrase used. And you quote
0: Stuart Brand saying something like, you know, they got to do their own thing and we got to do our own thing. We can't have other people telling each other to do things. So, you know, just this right. sort of weird hippie rationalization of profound segregation yeah, recapitulating but, itself within the commune environment.
1: Yeah, but, but let's not let us not let ourselves off the hook there. You know, I, I think that you're absolutely right. But that, that kind of hippie segregation of, you know, finding networks of people like yourself is the driving impetus behind Facebook. Yeah. It, it, it's yeah. a lot of the way that we live our lives. You know, p- part of what's on offer to our generation is the chance to build networks of friends you know, who are pre-segregated by, by their kind of culture.
0: In terms of the gender relations, you wrote, quote, they did not so much leave suburban gender relations behind as recreate them within a frontier fantasy. I mean, that was fascinating. What was even more fascinating was you pointing out that that's extremely unusual in the history of American communes. Typically, commune, and there's been all sorts of moments of communal experiment in in U.S. history, but typically they are far more gender heterodox, heterodox and egalitarian, but not the new communalists.
1: No, not the new communalists. And it was, that was a, a, a really dark surprise for me. It was not what I expected. You know, in some ways, if you look at a commune like the Oneida commune or, or other much earlier experiments, you know, frequently they have a kind of religious ideal that is you know, quite different or quite opposed to the mainstream society out of which they've come. The reverse is true for the, for the new communalists. For the new communalists, what could be more mid-century American than the desire to go get a piece of land, build your house on it, and live together free from the oversight of the state or the corporation? I mean, that's, that's, that's the suburban dream as well. So, no, so I think it's very common. And gender relations were, were really, really square, you know, really just astonishingly square in this period. And, uh, and, what
0: could be, and what could be more American than embracing the frontier myth? As they did, they celebrated this entirely caricatured image of both cowboys and Indians in this imagined past, all while ignoring the actually existing people like, let's say, Mexicanos in New Mexico or something like that, who actually inhabited the rural areas that they were settling. And there's some fascinating and revealing quotes from your book. Brand wrote in his journal in 1964, quote, Americans dwelling in the wilderness of changing eras are relearning to be natives from the most Native Americans, the Indians, studying with new clarity the ancient harmony of a shared land heritage. Another figure, Gurney Norman, wrote that indigenous people, quote, "...are joined by others who qualify as Indians of a sort by virtue of their skills, which allow them to function as teachers, as shamans." They also considered themselves beyond and better than indigenous people, a synthesis of sort of like Indians and engineers who embodied these I don't know like Jungian archetypes uh, that you cite, the cowboy nomad or the <laughs> long hunter. How how did this settler colonial mythos maybe for this generation, you know, uh, gleaned from television date you know television shows from their childhood or certain sorts of of cowboys and Indian books. How did that inform the communalist sense of superiority and separation? Was this just Teddy Roosevelt with geodesic domes and LSD?
1: <laughs> Wish I thought to write that. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I I think that this this group was really raised on 1950s American mythos, uh, you know, that we were the cowboy country, spaghetti westerns were the norm. Um, they were raised in that world. I think they were trying to put together their freedom in the only terms they had really seen, which, which were these kind of western terms. They were absolutely, um, I think, blind to the ways that they were recapitulating the colonial activities of earlier generations of Americans. You know, they would talk about the land that they were moving to as empty and as free well, no, it wasn't. They bought it from people. Um, there were people around the land who were usually people of color, one kind or another, uh, Native Americans, um Mexican Americans. And they lived quite separately from those folks, and they did see themselves as more attached to the future, more in touch with technology. And on the one hand, you know Native Americans in particular seemed to offer a, a stereotyped model of of individual freedom, of 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 knowing the land, of, of having that kind of intimate knowledge. While at the same time, I think folks in the counterculture, the new communalist counterculture, although I doubt they would admit it, saw Native Americans as they actually were as somehow out of touch and lesser. Um, you know, you mentioned, the nomad, you mentioned the cowboy nomad, and I actually brought with me um, a little passage from the Whole Earth Catalog in which the cowboy nomad is described, and I, I, I think it's worth reading. It's really, really incredible. So this is is from 1969, a supplement to the whole earth catalog, which we'll talk about in a little bit. It goes like this. The frontier days were landowning, putting down roots, self-sufficient farmer stability. The cowboy was living another lifestyle, sacrificing comfort for freedom and mobility. The cowboy nomad carried all his life support systems with him being restricted by what his vehicle, horse, could carry. I'll jump ahead a little bit. Society today is ambiguous. Laws enforce static living patterns with voter residency law, driver's license, state jurisdiction. The Howard Johnsons are all the same as the 7-Eleven, O-Totem, Pack-a-Sack, Little General, Baby Giant, Pick-a-Pack, Tom Thumb Market. If we put you in an American supermarket disoriented time clip, how long would it take you to guess the city you are in? Yet, there are cowboy nomads today living in another lifestyle and waiting for electronic media that everyone knows is doing it to blow the minds of the middle-class American suburbanite. While they wait, the cowboy nomads, outlaws, smoke loco weed around electronic campfires. Will you be staying here in Dodge City, Mr. Maverick? Well, ma'am, I reckon I'd get awfully itchy boots sitting around in one place very long. That just amazes me. It just just amazes me.
0: And it's amazing given that every single Apple store on earth today is utterly indistinguishable, and that we all inhabit a totally identical virtual space in these mega platforms.
1: Oh, oh without question. <laughs> and I, I, something I think that you've just put your finger on that's critical to understanding the impact of the counterculture on our lives, and particularly on the tech world and our lives, is that you can hear in that cowboy nomad passage that they are rejecting and attacking their parents, the middle class, because most of these folks are young, white, college-educated or could be, and they are attacking a kind of the 7-Eleven world, the lower-class version of the marketplace. But at the very same time, they are embracing the modes of living and the technologies that are rising in the society, that the independence, the small-team collaborations, and literally the computers that are coming to be powerful in the society at large. Moreover, they aren't against business, they're just against 7-Eleven. You know, when Stuart Brand sets out to help the commune folks of the late 1960s, early 70s, what does he choose as his vehicle? A catalog. He makes a catalog. For Brand and the people around him, business was a good way to change the world. Politics were bankrupt, but business was great. You know, one of, one of Stuart Brand's best friends is a, a man named Paul Hawken, and you might know him through Smith & Hawken, um, the garden tools. He was the founder, I believe, of the Irwan grocery chain. There were a whole slew of hippie businesses in the 1960s, and they were there, I think, because the hippies who founded them believed that business could change the world in a way that you know politics just couldn't and as we know now from our own time, this idea of building you know individuated businesses, entrepreneurial businesses being cowboy nomads in the business world has become sort of a stereotype
0: and this reminds me of the exact sort of opposite New Left iteration of this sort of thing taking place in the 60s in West Philadelphia, where I used to live, where there was this huge thing called Movement for a New Society that built a number of urban communes and built a cooperative grocery store, Mariposa, that's still there, a cooperative business rather than a a normally privately owned for-profit business. And those people in the Movement for a New Society embedded themselves in urban social movements of the era.
1: And and, and that's exactly right. And, and and there were a number of communes like that whose influence also still persists. Unfortunately, I think they were not the majo- not the majority. You know, the communes that lasted tend to be either integrated in the way that you just described into the larger community or or more often they tended to be deeply religious or to have authoritarian leadership. The the communes that Or, or sometimes I, both, I guess. Or sometimes both, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the communes that I studied It didn't last very long. You know, by by nineteen seventy three or so, seventy four, most all of them were gone. They lasted a year or two, precisely because shared consciousness is not a very good way to organize a society.
0: Let's get into the Whole Earth Catalog. What was it? Who was Stuart Brand, and what role did the catalog play in the new communalist movement? Not only the new communalist movement, but also for a broader set of Less hardcore counterculturalists, people like my parents who stayed in school, never dropped out, attended dead shows. They never truly dropped out, but they could vicariously do so through the catalog. Mm.
1: I'll never forget in the small town I was in, when I was about 10 years old, I wandered into the hippie bookstore in the one little tiny sort of mall that we had, and I found the Whole Earth Catalog, and it blew my 10-year-old mind. So the Whole Earth Catalog was created in 1968. By Stuart Brand and his wife at the time, Lois Brand. And they were living here in, in San Francisco, more or less the, on the peninsula. He had gone to Stanford. Brand had gone to Stanford. And in, a, in 1967, 68, um, we saw the Summer of Love in San Francisco. And the hippie movement was just exploding. And by that time, Brand had, had become an artist, a multimedia artist. He had helped create the Trips Festival in 1966, famous psychedelic gathering well-known figure. And he was seeing that his hippie friends were sort of being watched by the larger world, and they were starting to leave the city. They were starting to head back to the land. And he wanted to help them. His father died and left him a small amount of money. And he began trying to figure out how he could use that money to, to help his friends. And he began to hit on the idea of a catalog, um, particularly thinking about L.L. L. Bean. L.L. L. Bean was, was his model. And he got back to San Francisco after the funeral, and together with his wife, Lois, they got in a truck, and they drove off to a set of, new, set of communes in New Mexico, Colorado, Northern California, and they brought with them a kind of mimeographed sheet of things they thought that people might want to buy on a commune, you know, shovels, that sort of stuff. And they got a lot of ideas. They were not trying to sell goods. So this is really important. What they were trying to do was create a catalog that would show people how to get goods for themselves. And that was the first Earth catalog. They came back to Menlo Park, the edge of the Stanford campus, and they created a catalog. The first one came out in the fall of 1968. It was about 65, 66 pages. And it contained tools that they thought people would need access to, you know, to to, to form form a commune. Now, if I were heading to a commune, if I were going to start a a farm-based commune, I know what I would want. I would want shovels and backhoes and a water system. But that's actually not what's in the catalog. This is what's so interesting. The catalog is about 80% books, including books on cybernetics, a picture of the first Hewlett Packard calculator that was called a personal calculator, an individual calculator, things that you might never need on a commune to actually do the work of living there, but which were in fact exactly the kinds of tools we were talking about earlier, tools that could be used to reveal the hidden system of the universe and open up the kind of shared consciousness on which the new world of the communes and their new social order would depend so catalog gets produced twice a year um, until 1972 there are quarterly supplements that come out and each iteration incorporates the the previous iteration so by 1972 the last Earth catalog is 400 pages long and it stops then but it periodically gets gets revivified brand goes on to do other things but the catalog was an inspiration particularly to the tech world but but to all kinds of folks It It was
0: extremely popular.
1: Oh, it was extraordinarily popular. You know, if you'll hang on just a second, I'm going to get my catalog because I think there are a couple of passages that are worth quoting. Give me just a second. So, fall 1969 catalog. On the inside of every catalog, there was a description of what it was for and what it was meant to do. This is the function, it says. The whole earth catalog functions as an evaluation and access device. With it, the user should know better what is worth getting and where and how to do the getting. So people would suggest a tool, and then there would be instructions in the listing about how to, how to get the tool. But I, I'm looking at the table of contents, and I, my mind is just blown. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven categories. The first and most important is understanding whole systems. Uh, there's shelter and land use, industry and craft, but there's also nomadics and communications. I see understanding media by uh, Marshall McLuhan, cybernetics by Nor- Norbert Wiener, I see a, a, McKee key, a McBee key sort system, an early kind of computing thing, designed for a brain, another cybernetic book. Now, what's the purpose of this? Why these kinds of tools? Well, being Stuart Brand, um, he actually wrote out the purpose of the catalog as he understood it at the front cover. He says this, We are as gods and might as well get good at it. So far, remotely done power and glory, as via government, big business, formal education, church, has succeeded to the point where gross defects obscure actual gains. In response to this dilemma and to these gains, a realm of intimate, personal power is developing. Power of the individual to conduct his own education, find his own inspiration, shape his own environment, and share his adventure with whoever is interested. Tools that aid this process are sought and promoted by the Holler's Catalog. The vision here is, is a vision that seems entirely appropriate to a wealthy America of the 1960s, to young white folks who you know could be in college, may soon be in college, maybe were in college. They are as gods. They have access to an array of technologies like nothing human beings have seen before. Some negative, of course, like the, the, the nuclear bomb. They are as gods, and they've got to get good at it. Well, what does that mean? That means using tools to build societies around a shared consciousness of this kind of swirling, global circulation of information. And that's what the catalog was for. Now, the catalog became a model for people like Steve Jobs or Alan Kay, both of whom are critical to the computer industry. Steve Jobs at Apple, Alan Kay goes on to design um, a series of things that are now in your laptop. And for those folks, the catalog looked, as Steve Jobs famously said, like an early version of Google. It's, it's a paper-bound search engine that empowers you to become ever more yourself by means of consuming, by means of seeking, searching, buying,
0: and the God's brand refer—the God's brand was referring to that was Fuller's comprehensive designer.
1: I th- yeah, I think they. they I think right. They, what, what would make you like a God was being a comprehensive designer. It would. You might be a mere mortal in your fleshy body. But if you could access the technologies of the industries around you and repurpose them for the divine mission of making yourself ever more who you were, then you would, in fact, become a god. I think there was another sense in which he meant it as well, which was we as a species are now in a place where we're dropping bombs that could literally destroy the earth. And I think that's something that our time has, has underplayed about the 60s. It's only 20 years from the moment when we dropped the first atom bomb and when it looks like, you know, we might just have bombs raining down all around us and the earth might die out. And I think he senses that kind of power as well.
0: How did cybernetics and systems theory make their way into Brand's life and into the counterculture more generally? Was it directly through Wiener or was it Wiener as read through Buckminster Fuller or, or how?
1: Ironically, it's through the art world, uh, which is not the place you would you would expect to see it. So, so Wiener is extremely popular um, from from 1950 forward. Um, you know, he's taught in many universities. It'd be hard to avoid his ideas. Shape political science, sociology, anthropology. So, so he's sort of everywhere. He's sort of in the air. Brand encounters his ideas though very specifically by by participating in an art group called USCO, the US Company, a psychedelic art group based in New York in the early 60s, devoted to producing um, you know multimedia light and sound shows that caused you to appreciate your oneness with the other beings on the earth. Their posters would say things like, we are all one, all one, all one. So Brand worked with them. And uh, Gerd Stern, who was uh, one of the founders of USCO, went to a Sunday brunch at John Cage's house and was handed, I think, a a copy of McLuhan's Understanding Media, an early draft of that, and brought that back. And, And I think that somewhere in that, McLuhan's views were very shaped by Norbert Wiener's, somewhere in that mix, Brand began to encounter Wiener's cybernetics as such. And I think that's how it traveled. I think Fuller, of course, was also a major vehicle. Everyone read Fuller in the counterculture.
0: Let's talk about one important tool, LSD. Mm, let's. Ken Kesey, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which, if I remember correctly, is about an individual struggle against institutional brutality. Yep. It's like yep. a basic theme. He discovered the LSD that would later power his traveling hippie bus of merry pranksters. He discovered it in 1959 as a research subject, part of the CIA's MK Ultra program. What was MK? ultra and what should we make of the fact that the merry pranksters psychedelic crusade was nurtured at the heart of the military industrial complex
1: well i think we get to laugh uh, pretty hard <laughs> <laughs> oh. and, and 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 i, 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 I so uh, we you talk about lsd specifically in a second but i want to really note the theme that you're you're tugging at here which i think is is critical we often imagine that the, the hippies of the 1960s were rebels and in many ways they were but they were rebels in in terms that had already been set in large ways by the military industrial complex. We've already mentioned several of those ways. The collaborative, flexible styles of the research world of Norbert Wiener and cybernetics, the frontier orientation of the kind of military colonialism we were engaged in at the time, and now uh, <laughs> MKUltra, oh my golly. Okay, so MKUltra um, was a, a secret program to see if um, LSD might serve as a truth serum it was administered in Veterans Administration Hospitals here in California at the Menlo Park VA, or maybe the Palo Alto VA, I'm sorry, I forget which one. And that's where Kesey took his first LSD. It's also where Stuart Brand took his first LSD. You know, I've actually read Stuart Brand's account of his first trip. Um, it's it's wonderful. It's in his diary. And it's just marvelous. So he goes to a lab, and um, he doesn't. they don't give him a tab of acid as they might now. They shoot him up with it. They give him a shot. And they come back, and they, they chat with him for a while, they come back and they, they visit him and he has visions of different kinds. And they and, and they come back and they ask him how he's feeling and he says, very thing. And I've always enjoyed that, just very thing. Um, <laughs> anyhow, they must have given him an enormous dose because he was high for three days. What's intriguing to me about, about Brand and Kesey's experiences with LSD and Kesey's written about his as well was how they read them. You know, I I, I don't think I'm revealing secrets by saying that, that like many in my generation, I've taken LSD as well. And I, I have, my,
0: like, fewer people in my generation.
1: I yeah, think. is that right? Uh, that's well, funny. I,
0: I, I think it's a, my generation's a little bit more mushroom and mdma ah, their, in their in their narcotic background, in their right, drug right, background.
1: Right, 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 both mellower and slightly more cautious. I, I kind of like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, so, so certainly when I, I did my LSD in the late 70s, early 80s, it, it was a thing that you did, very intimate, very powerful, very important, very emotional. You did it with your friends. It was intense, but it wasn't political. And when when Brand and Kesey talk about their experiences with LSD, they describe a kind of masculinity change. Uh, Kesey talks about this being the end of his long, this is his exact words, long personal nightmare. Night spelled K-N-I-G-H-T, mare. And he felt the outside shell of his maleness cracking and he felt himself open up to a larger world. Brand had similar kinds of accounts. And, and what I'm trying to say is that For these folks, LSD was a way into a world that looked exactly not like the black and white bureaucratic militaristic world of mainstream America. It looked colorful, playful, and yet also aligned with the invisible forces of order that cybernetics had revealed, that the military industrial world had revealed. And it even came to them as a liberating technology from the institutions they were ostensibly seeking to escape
0: I mean, I think most people who've taken psychedelics would agree that the big picture, basic insight of the experience, especially the first time, is the fundamental interconnectedness interconnectedness of all things.
1: Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I think that's probably right. I, I, I think that the, not just fundamental interconnectedness for 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 Brand's generation, but a kind of um, softness and willingness to be able to let go of the kind of hard-bodied masculinity that was so prized. You know, in that period, think about think back on Jack Kennedy, who in his own time was was really seen as a kind of forward looking figure to our eyes. You know, he's a pretty macho guy. And I think that's the kind of guy that men like Brandon Kesey were supposed to be. And and acid offered a a way out of that.
0: After the collapse of the communes, a fascinating debate over the ethics of colonizing space surfaced (laughs) a dissident element within the whole Earth Network. People like Wendell Berry who opposed Brand's techno-utopianism. What was the meaning of this debate over space colonization? And why does it have such a pull still today? We see it with Elon Musk and all sorts of tech rich people.
1: I think those are actually two separate questions. And let me try to tease them apart a little bit. So so the space colonies debate breaks out in the early 70s. In, and you know, this is toward the end of the NASA program. In, in the iteration, that it, in the form that it takes then, Stuart Brand is working with Rusty Schweikert, Schweikert who's a, an astronaut, and they're actually presenting to Congress. They're getting funding to imagine this world. They're working with NASA's, one of NASA's artists to paint space colonies. In that vision, I think that vision was actually almost like NASA-sponsored communes. The, the vision was one of colonies in outer space within which people would be able to live these sort of nature-centered, free lives. You know, Earth might be going to hell. We might destroy it. We might turn out to be bad gods and blow it up. But if we could get to space and build the right kind of space colonies, we would be free there. Now, that vision is, is, is you know, sort of in a lot of places in America at that moment. You, you might know the biosphere movement, you know, the biosphere one, biosphere two. You know, the idea that we could put people inside these terraria, and, and allow them to kind of grow and, and be whole systems. I, you're probably too young to have had to have a terrarium growing up, but in, in my generation, you had. No, I you did. did. Oh, see, I did. see, see. I, I, I'm I'm born
0: 1982, uh, so I think the 80s maybe they were, they were still, still around. It's
1: great. So yeah, I'm born 61, and let me tell you, terraria were the thing. And <laughs> what, what you were supposed to get from having a terrarium was the understanding that a closed system could take care of itself. And the space colonies movement, such as it was, I think was terrariums on steroids. The idea was that you could build in outer space a closed system that would be better than what you had here on Earth and, and it would free you from the need to really worry about what was, what was here on Earth. It was the kind of thing that sort of seemed possible after five years of LSD. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, I, I want to distinguish that from the, the space programs of Elon Musk and others. Um, there is sort of sometimes that space colony imagining. What I see in the valley now, so I live in Silicon Valley, and and I, I live two miles from NASA. And this is right in my neighborhood what i see in in the world of the folks who are who are interested in outer space but coming from things like car companies or computer companies is a is is something a little bit different than what bram was after I, I think the new projects are very much ego driven um you know a, a reporter once asked me what i made of of elon musk's love of rockets and and i i told him very directly um rockets are penises it's not that hard um, pardon the pun. <laughs> and, um, you, know, and y- y- you know, that's what rockets are. And, and, and I think that that's what, what you're seeing now is a lot of rocketry. In Brand's time, it wasn't rocketry. It was space colonies. And I think that's really important. Now, it did spawn a huge debate within the whole Earth world. And folks like Wendell Berry, who's a Kentucky farmer and um, amazing essayist, you know, they, they got down and said, no, 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 no. we got to take care of the Earth here at home. And it was kind of a reckoning, you know, that, that, that part of the new communalist movement that had ignored the Mexican-Americans around the edges of the of the communes, that had ignored Native Americans or, or rewritten them in these sort of stereotypical ways. Um, they took a bit of a beating at the hands of Wendell Berry. And as they continued to try to align themselves with, you know, Congress and the space program. And yeah.
0: After this whole moment started to fall apart, how did counterculturalists who were coming home from the communes on the one hand, and then corporate and defense funded researchers, and then computer hobbyists. How did they all come together in the early Bay Area computer scene?
1: So, so the communes, I, you hear a drop in my voice because, you know, it was actually a very sad time, the late 70s, very beginning of the early 80s. For folks who had been in the commune movement, it was heartbreaking. You know, they really thought they were going to change the world. They really thought they were the forerunners, the pioneers of a, of a new faith, um, simultaneously embracing technology and nature, being free together, building societies around shared consciousness of like-minded folks. It really, they really thought it was going to work, and it didn't. The communes collapsed. A few remained, but they were a mess. And as we come to the late 70s and early 1980s, they need work. These are, these are pretty well-educated folks generally, and they need work. They're starting to be in their 30s. They need work. And what industry is bubbling up here in Silicon Valley but the tech industry? You know, until that time, it had been mostly large defense contractors. And but by the early 1980s, all kinds of small firms are starting to bubble up, doing computation of various kinds. And people come back from the communes, and they go to work in those firms. and. Stuart Brand is still here. You know, he's very famous. He has a lot of cultural legitimacy. He's very cool. He's written for Rolling Stone. He's been profiled in pretty much every major American newspaper by this time. The Whole Earth Catalog sold more than a million copies at the end of the day. So Brand himself is still a countercultural hero. He's still here. He fun. he. Founds a publication called Coevolution Quarterly. So we come into the early 80s, companies like Apple are being founded, other, other tech firms are bubbling up and emerging around him. People are getting work there. And suddenly, a guy named Stephen Levy goes and meets another guy named Kevin Kelly, who both of whom become very important figures in contemporary tech. Um, Kevin is working on the whole Earth catalog originally, then on Coevolution, i sorry, works on the Coevolution Quarterly. Levy writes a book called Hackers, in which he describes three generations of computer hackers. And he tells Kevin about this, and and Kevin goes to Stewart, and and Stewart says, oh, we should have a gathering. We should have a conference where we bring these folks together. And they do. They have, uh, in 1984, something called the Hackers Conference uh, at Fort Mason in San Francisco. And for two days, three generations of hackers get together. And the most amazing thing happens. So at this meeting, you have technologists, some of whom are businessmen. You have Stuart Brand and the Whole Earth Catalog crew, most of whom are former commune folks. And you have reporters whom Stuart Brand has invited, you know, so that the word gets out. And what happens? They start talking to each other. And the computer folks begin to adopt the self-understanding that the hippies have. The computer folks begin to say, oh, you know, actually, like, I'm making this software and, you know, I'm actually kind of changing the world. I'm actually kind of like a hippie. I'm I'm a hacker. The hippies on the other hand remember their communes have fallen apart their social vision has collapsed and they are in the presence of people building a new industry and getting rich who otherwise look pretty much like themselves they start saying well you know gosh you know maybe computing is the new is the new way to go maybe computing will do for us what the communes couldn't and brand actually is later quoted as saying you know computers are the new LSD they will free us and that coming together of the emerging tech world of the early 80s and the kind of remnant counterculture of the 60s and 70s is enormously powerful. You can see it all through the computational world of that period. You know, just think think about something as simple as the Apple logo. You know, the Apple fell on Newton's head. Okay, that was the original drawing. But the rainbow Apple, where is that coming from? Well, that's partly coming from the sort of rainbow vision of the 60s, the rainbow vision of of gay San Francisco. It signals that we, the Apple computer, are, are the new freedom. Now, The same year the hacker conference happens, you know, Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple, is at the hackers conference. That same year, Apple at the Super Bowl launches its famous Mac ad in which uh, you may remember this ad. I I don't know, but there's a bunch of um, gray men all watching a giant screen from which Big Brother is shouting at them. And then from, back, from the back of the auditorium in color, the only person in color, a beautiful blonde woman in a red and white pair of shorts and T-shirt with a giant hammer, runs down the aisle and smashes the screen with the hammer. And then goes to black and, says, and you see a sign that says, Macintosh, the reason that 1984 won't be like 1984. By 1984. By
0: 1984— She destroys Big Brother. She destroys
1: Big Brother, precisely. And, and the computer becomes the tool that destroys Big Brother— and 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 that's the dream of the counterculture. The dream is to develop a tool of consciousness transformation that can be used by individuals for the purpose of destroying mass society. And Apple leverages that promise.
0: And just to underline this really key argument of yours, this is not an inevitable product of computer technology. This is a product of concrete social worlds becoming networked to one another.
1: Oh, absolutely. This Yeah, this has— no computers could be many different things there is absolutely no reason that they should be read as quote personal technologies and and i want to be even more specific about how com- how these worlds are coming together what's happening here is what sociologists call legitimacy exchange legitimacy exchange is what happens when two creatures or worlds that have Independent legitimacy, say a celebrity and a politician, get come together, and they each get more famous because the other one is there. The, the politician gains the, the, the luster of the celebrity, the celebrity gains the authority and seriousness of the politician. When the counterculture and the tech world come together, the tech world is still dramatically uncool. It still has that reputation from the Vietnam era of being the tool builders for the military state. I mean, things were so bad during the Vietnam War that at the AI lab at MIT, they they built a a bulletproof glass wall in case the hippies attacked. That's how scared people were in the 60s who worked on computing. Now, in, in the early 80s, wow, they were hanging out with Stuart Brand, the guy who'd been in Rolling Stone, and he was celebrating them, them. The hippies. The hippies were celebrating the computer nerds as the real commune dwellers, the real avant-garde. It, it was a time when essentially former members of the counterculture traded the legitimacy of their movement for the authority and the power of the new computer industry, and the computer industry reciprocated by inviting people like Stuart Brand and Kevin Kelly um, to become their spokesmen and to provide the, the ideology that, that would celebrate the machine as countercultural.
0: The scene of techno-libertarians that developed around brand would come to disavow government as a source, as just the source of interference in an otherwise born-to-be-free cyberspace, even though, quite obviously, the internet emerged from defense-funded research. How did the early Bay Area computer scene go about beginning to mystify that, laying the groundwork for the emergence of companies like Apple as a revolutionary countercultural force and for this broader techno-utopian market populism that defined American ideology more generally.
1: There's a thing that I found it very hard to tease out when I was doing the research for this book, and it's still a little tricky to think. I was told as I was working in this book that computing was sort of somehow naturally a liberatory force. And if you gave a person a computer, they would naturally be a freer human being, and that it was something about the devices. Then I talked to engineers who actually worked very close to the devices, and they knew full well where these devices came from. They knew that their chips came from Polaris missiles. They knew where stuff came from. So, so they were very aware of the government ties and, and even sought government funding. What I began to realize was that Stuart Brand and then later people like John Perry Barlow, who, who wrote a, a famous uh, doctrine of, about cyberspace, arguing that there was no government in cyberspace, these folks... We're collaborating with what was essentially the marketing departments of companies like Apple and Google. This was a storytelling function that in some ways was separate from the design and build out of the machines themselves. These were folks whose business it was to bring together communities and make meaning around the devices, not to make the devices themselves. Building computers does not necessarily need to be, and in the early days wasn't necessarily a, a kind of meaningful activity. I don't know if you remember that in the early days of the Mac, there was a desperate search to figure out what a Mac was good for. For a while there, Apple promoted the idea that it was essentially a recipe box. You could have it in your kitchen. You know, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you laugh now, but you know, they bet millions of dollars on that particular marketing campaign. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, I would spend $3,000 to have my recipes on the table? I don't know. So, So in that world... The, the countercultural story was available as one that I think could marry technological developments that were happening in laboratories and manufacturing spaces to a deep American story about self-empowerment, freedom, that had all the cultural sheen of the counterculture, which was still very much admired after the Vietnam War, even though its, it's mission had largely failed.
0: Someone we should pause to introduce now, I think, is Gregory Bateson. Who was he and how did his mystical take on cybernetics help meld the counterculture to the computer age and reconcile back to the landers to high-tech reality?
1: So so Gregory Bateson is a British anthropologist um, who is married for a time to Margaret Mead. And, and he's a major figure in this book. And, and I want to also say in, in the prequel, The Democratic Surround, he is somebody who moves to America before World War II and embraces cybernetics as part of the early team of people who gather at the Macy conferences. The Macy conferences are the place where American social scientists meet up with Norbert Wiener and the engineers around him and begin to make meaning around what computing can be. They begin to formulate this vision of cybernetics as the science of control through communication that Norbert Wiener would later sell. Bateson ends up moving to Palo Alto and in Palo Alto, he works together with a, a series of, of scientists, uh, psychiatrists, to form the Palo Alto School of, of Psychology. And the Palo Alto School saw the individual self, the individual psyche, as being formed at the intersection of patterns of communication. You were essentially a product of your community's communication. And that's an idea that goes back all the way to Franz Boas in anthropology and the notion of culture and, personal, culture and personality anthropology. It's got a long history. But, but in the 60s and 70s, it had a particular anchor in, in cybernetics. Brand got to know Bateson, and in fact was with Bateson when he died um, at the San Francisco at the Zen Center. I think it was in San Francisco. There are a couple different branches, and they were very close, very close. And you know, Bateson introduced Brand to notions of coevolution. He believed that you know he wrote a book called Steps to an Ecology of Mind that was enormously influential on Brand. I wouldn't describe Bateson as a mystic. I would describe Bateson as a systems-oriented anthropologist. Who believed, as Wiener did, that this the and as Claude Levi Strauss did in 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 for example you know earlier structural anthropology that human beings lived inside and were the products of communication systems and they became who they were not necessarily because they had a particular interior soul or character or condition but because they were raised in particular circumstances and endured particular modes of communication. Uh, one of his most famous conclusions, and one that I think he should be ashamed of, and is the notion of the, the double bind. He coined the term the double bind. And the double bind is, is simply a, a way of describing a situation where you're told one thing that is clearly contrary to what's actually being said, and you get put in a double bind. But the trouble is that he used it to, to blame mothers for their schizophrenic children, which I think did, did enormous harm, enormous harm, and he hasn't been held to account for that. With that one caveat, I I think that Bateson was, you know, a really important intellectual across a number of fields, certainly a huge influence on brand's life. I'm
0: Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. You definitely know about The Dig since you're listening to this podcast, and you probably know about Jacobin, which helps put out The Dig. But you might not know about Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy Capitalism is once again up for debate. Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy, is a scholarly journal produced by Jacobin Foundation that aims to do everything it can to promote and deepen this conversation. Its focus is, as the title suggests, to develop a theory and strategy with capitalism as its target, both in the North and in the global South. That's an ambitious agenda, but this is a time for thinking big. You can check out Catalyst's great essays, including contributions from scholars like Mike Davis, and subscribe and print for just $20 for an entire year by going to bit.ly slash digcatalyst. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash digcatalyst. The most concrete way that Brand brought the catalog model to the emerging internet culture was with a message board mm. that I checked. It still exists. I'm not sure if it's still very popular, but at the time was huge, called the Whole Earth Electronic Link, or Well. It brought together technologists, journalists, and critically, deadheads.
1: <laughs> yeah, dead, the, the, what was critical about the deadheads was that they liked to talk. And that's what, that's what kept the system going. But anyways, what were you going to say?
0: Yeah, w- why was this message board so pivotal how how is it different from how much of the internet functioned
1: at the Great. time so the well was created when um, Larry Brilliant who would be go on to be a figure at Google and, and a doctor uh, approached Stuart Brand and he said look Stuart I've got I've built this new technological system and this new digital system for communication via telephone lines and modems and but I don't know how to populate it and I remember you did this whole earth catalog could we just put the whole earth catalog online and Brand, who had been involved with something called the Western Behavioral Sciences Institute, which is sort of an elite online think tank, um, and who had also been you know, going to dating sites and similar kinds of chat zones, said, no, 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 what we need to do is build a system where people can talk to one another in real time through the computer. And so they created the Well, the Whole Earth Electronic Link. You know, This was a system where it was a dial-up system. You used your telephone. I don't know if you remember the sound of modems like... <laughs> You know, just that oh, yeah. wonderful sound. You know,
0: I remember when that came into my house with AOL. Oh
1: God, yeah, and, and you you were you, you'd wait right, and it was like you were waiting while R two D two summoned the voices of your friends. You know, it was it was fun,
0: and you had to use the and you had to use a uh, the phone line. Yeah,
1: absolutely, you had to and use a ocu- landline, and occupy it. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, so Brand gathered together some folks. He invited folks to join it. So, so actually, let me step further back. So the system was built, this is before there were images on the internet, this is before there was a graphical user interface, it's just text scrolling down a black screen. And he invited folks to join the system, you would pay I think $8 a month and then $2 an hour, something like that, it's very cheap compared to Prodigy or to AOL at the time. And you would enter chat rooms that were thematic, so there might be a theme room on on the Grateful Dead or one on divorce, whatever. And these would have hosts in them who would maybe get free accounts or reduced reduced price accounts, and would then um, you know uh, control the conversation in those spaces. And you would have a handle. Sounds you know. a little like Reddit. Yeah, a lot like Reddit. But 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 there's a couple of key differences. First, Brand invited folks who had already been associated with the catalogs. These are Whole Earth folks, Bay Area technologists, deadheads, and critically, journalists who to whom he gave free accounts and who publicized it as the emblem of the world to come. And that, that's, that was really important. These are people like John Markoff, Katie Hafner of the New York Times, you know, really important folks who, who had enormous influence on what people thought computing was going to be. So give them free accounts. But here's, here's the thing. It's grounded in the Bay Area and the people on the well know each other, not just through the well, but through monthly well office parties where they actually get together in person. So there's an offline component that grounds it. It keeps it from being a troll farm. The other thing that matters is they can't see each other on the screen. Think back to, you know, what we were talking about earlier in the 1960s about the politics of consciousness. You know, know, what LSD is meant to do is reveal the hidden pattern, the hidden order of things, to strip away the irrelevant and make visible the true. In a lot of ways, that's what the Wells interface does. The Wells interface is just pure words scrolling across. It feels enormously liberating. It feels like space. It feels like what it was going to get called, cyberspace. It feels different. It feels like a space devoted only to consciousness. It feels like the answer to the failure of the communes. Now, finally, we have our commune here. And it was extremely influential. People did join it from around the world. It brought something else with it that I think is important for our own more neoliberal moment. It's something we see all over social media today. And it kind of got its start there. And it was the trading of interpersonal relations for commercial gain and vice versa.
0: And obscuring you, you know, the sort of difference between the two.
1: Absolutely. And, a, and, a sort and, of yeah,
0: gift culture.
1: Right. It was called a gift economy. And, and you, if you ask someone on The Well in this period what it was like, say, oh, it's wonderful. We just give each other things. It's all just a gift economy. There's no money. There's no nothing. It, you know, it sounds like sort of an early Burning Man. Yeah. So, Marshall Mouse know,
0: begs to differ that there's nothing at stake yeah. in such a <laughs> <Yeah>. economy. Right.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and what you see is instead people using a kind of countercultural language of shared, co- shared cool, shared consciousness, while also asking each other questions that would be very profitable to have answers to. Remember, this is grounded in the tech epicenter, right? This is the Bay Area, mid 80s, late 80s. The folks on this list know stuff which is enormously valuable. And, and you can see that information being traded. So I, I, I do think it's an early um, example of what David Stark, a sociologist, would later call heterarchy. Heterarchy being worlds where you trade value across multiple regimes, some social, some economic, some political.
0: A similar logic governed the Global Business Network, a company that Brand helped create to bring corporate leaders together to better see and plan for the future. I don't know if that's a good summary, but it was an approach that, weirdly enough, Drew upon this heterodox corporate forecasting approach from Royal Dutch Shell, which in turn had its roots in the theories of Herman Kahn, the man who was the real-life model for Doctor Strangelove. How did Brand and others bring the commune to corporate America, and how did they effectively conflate in doing so? Effectively conflate corporate freedom with human liberation, and take their own horizontal but very particular elite network as evidence that an increasingly unequal society was in fact becoming a more liberated one
1: so so I think that corporate leaders in general and this is especially true when I read into the the global business network archives but corporate leaders in general need two things desperately in my experience they need a plan for the business and they need a rationale for doing the business beyond profit I, I've spent a lot of time around corporate think tanks of different kinds and You know, corporate leaders need to know where the world is going and they need to be able to sell stuff into that world. Fair enough, that's just the business part. But the other side of it is their lives have got to mean more than selling stuff. They've got to mean more than just making money. And Brand and the folks from Royal Dutch Shell with whom he hooked up were able to marry those two impulses into a single organization, the Global Business Network, and to a series of processes uh, connected to social forecasting, but also connected to stuff as simple as mailing the CEOs a carefully chosen book every month. So, Brand did things like learning journeys, where he and folks associated with the Whole Earth Catalog would take executives, for example, rowing in Sweden for five days, or down the Rio Chama in the American Southwest, and on these learning journeys, executives were offered the chance to get to know land, get to know nature, get to know their own place in a journey. They were offered the chance to sort of act out their own self-formation in the company of other executives like themselves. And again, very culturally legitimate, super cool former hippies. And I think that what happened there was that the Global net, the global Business Network became a way of purveying the process of networking itself, of gathering, of going on journeys, of going down rivers, just like Ken Kesey once got in the car and drove down the highway uh, with the Merry Pranksters. That began to be a place where you could imagine a new kind of world, networked, project-based, collaborative, seem to live in that world, even though you might be an executive in a hierarchical community, and that way do two things at the same time. Get a glimpse of the world that was coming, a world of project-based, flexible, individuated labor, and become yourself meaningful. You were, you were living your best life. You were living a life inside a story. You weren't just buying and selling. You were an adventurer, not unlike one of the Merry Pranksters.
0: Did GBN deliver concrete economic benefits to its corporate participants or just supply them with a fun and justificatory ideology or, or some of both?
1: Well, you'd have to ask the, the clients on that one. Um, the, the company was eventually sold to the Monitor Group, which is a, a for-profit consulting firm. I, I, just, I honestly don't know. Right? It, 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 did it provide actionable data? Not that I'm aware of. But did it provide heuristics, ways of looking at problems? Um, did it offer executives new ways of collaborating with one another? Did it help make connections across organizations that otherwise might not have met? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think it did that very, very well. Well,
0: I think you suggest in your book that the kind of whole Earth model has something to do with why Silicon Valley beat out earlier Tech Hub, the one that took root around MIT and Route 128 in Massachusetts.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm borrowing there from Annalise Axenian, um, former dean of the information school at at Berkeley, um, who is... I still think probably the best scholar on Silicon Valley to ever walk the earth. She pointed out that the world of Route 128 in Boston was a fairly siloed world. Companies were separated into towers um, that lined the highway of Route 128. They didn't socialize together. They weren't collaborative. The collaborative ethos of the counterculture that permeates the Bay Area simply didn't exist in the same way in Massachusetts. It's a much more, <laughs> I grew up there, I ought to know. Uh, it's a much more uh, Protestant, uptight, tight-lipped kind of world. The counterculture, by contrast, created a system in which every individual was meant to work with and collaborate with every other individual, and in which self-growth, personal growth, personal formation, and doing business were not seen as antithetical. They were seen as the same thing. You know, this is the ethos of hippie business, come back, come back to, to amplify the tech world. And I think that's been enormously beneficial. You know, Saxenian showed that in Silicon Valley, what makes the place roar. Is the ability of companies to cross boundaries, of workers to talk to one another, no matter the NDAs, no matter the the need to preserve corporate privacy, they could talk to one another, collaborate with one another, form companies quickly. That ethos, I think, depends on a kind of cultural style that's underneath there. Um, it's the kind of cultural style that produces Burning Man. It's the cultural style that, you know. Um, produces the Global Business Network. It's a style that says we are each on a personal journey. Let's do it together. And if we do it together and and summon the right tools together, we might begin to glimpse a new way of working together that we can bring back into the business world.
0: Brand saw the MIT Media Lab as a model for the future of work. What was the Media Lab? And what do you make of Brand's assessment of it, given what it's been in the news for Recently, Which is getting into big trouble for the funding it received from Jeffrey Epstein. Did this, is this just like an unfair punch I'm throwing or did it relate in some way or does it shed some light in some way on brand's blind spot for the way that these sorts of places fit into larger systems of power and domination?
1: So, so Brand does a book on the Media Lab. He becomes very close with Nicholas Negroponte, publishes a book called The Media Lab in 1985, The Media Lab, Inventing the Future at MIT. You know, in the mid-90s, he's, he, Brand, is, very tight with the community that's writing Wired Magazine, with, um, Esther Dyson, uh, Mitch Kapoor, Nicholas Negroponte, an entire generation of people who are mostly centered at MIT or, and in San Francisco, and who are reimagining computing as a fundamentally social activity. So Nicholas Negroponte runs the ARCMAC group at MIT. Um, the Media Lab looks like the place where computing is going to take the next step and where the kinds of sociability we might have seen in the dial-up world of the well will now have images and music and, and finally the sort of cybernetic vision of a world suffused with technologies that reveal that the material world is nothing but information and that information is nothing but material. It's, it's a sort of Buddhist ideal, right? The, you know, Emptiness is form, form is emptiness. It looks like the Media Lab is going to be the place that reveals all of that. And that's what Brand says more or less in his book. It doesn't become that. It famously misses all kinds of important developments. You know, the internet, the World Wide Web. The World Wide Web is not born at the Media Lab. It's hard to think now of inventions that are key to the development of social media, to the development of the web, to the development of security systems that emerged from the MIT Media Lab. What you can think of is a lot of corporate-sponsored, hand-wavy kinds of projects. I think that brand and the whole-earth folks have always tended to do what a lot of elite folks do, meet other elites and become part of their world and help make meaning of their projects. I think that what they missed with the Media Lab, the, the real problem with the Media Lab, where I would take my own punch, is that it didn't do the things that brand predicted that it would. And he was unable, I think, to see, he was unable to distinguish, and as most of us were at the time, I mean, I was a news, newspaper guy then, and I wrote a feature on the on, on the Media Lab, and I said, it's the same thing. I think all of us had trouble seeing the difference between hand-waving and marketing, which the MIT Media Lab was extremely good at, and sort of selling visions, and actually making things that brought visions to life, which the MIT Media Lab was not so good at. Fast forward to our own time and to the, to the Epstein problems, um, You know, I I don't read those as necessarily symptomatic of the Media Lab culture as a whole. I think if that's the case, the world of elite institutions, you know, universities, companies, very chummy worlds where people do some bad stuff. And we can see that in the New York governor's office right now. So, so, and Epstein's a particularly egregious case, but I, I do think we should be careful not to conflate his crimes with the successes and failures of the Media Lab as a whole.
0: Let's move on to, to Wired. Kevin Kelly, who you mentioned earlier, he became executive editor at Wired after working with Brand as editor of Coevolution Quarterly, a much less successful periodical. Who was Kelly? What was Wired as it became this phenomenon in the nineteen nineties? And what influence did Kelly and others sort of neo-Darwinian take on cybernetics have on this magazine that came to define define computer culture?
1: Yeah, really, really important questions. Let's start with Kevin Kelly. So Kevin Kelly um, is a born-again hippie who was walking across Europe and Asia for seven years. He famously fell asleep on what was thought to be Christ's grave on the night before Easter. And when he woke up in the morning, he knew that the entire story of the Bible was true. And he's recounted this uh, epiphany in the very first episode of um, This American Life, and it's still online, you can go find it. It's 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 astonishing. And so he's always been a, an admirer of the Whole Earth Catalog, and, and the later of Coevolution Quarterly. And Brand was at one point looking for an editor of Coevolution Quarterly. Kelly applied. He interviewed him, and he hired him. And then he realized, said Brand, that he had hired you know a born again hippie. And so so the, the reason I mentioned the, the religious part is that I think Kevin has always thought of technology as the the sort of fingers of God's hand acting in this world. That he re, he really does have, I think, a mystical vision rooted in his faith that that technology is is the language through which God is speaking to us and bringing us together. And in that context Kelly's embrace of cybernetic idealism is, is especially interesting. So he wrote a book called New Rules for the New Economy, um, which is a shortened version of a, a much longer book that he wrote, which in essence translated cybernetic notions of emergent order, systems thinking, into stories about how the new economy would be organized. This fusion of systems thinking, religious million, millenarianism, and neoliberal economics, that's the stew um, out of which Wired bubbled. Now, the, the Wired story is really interesting. It was founded by Louis Rosetto and Jane Metcalf, but founded in this case is, I think, a bit of a misnomer. I want to really stress the importance of the Whole Earth Network in creating Wired. So, so Rosetto and Metcalf had been in, in Amsterdam, I think it was Amsterdam, they were in Holland. They were doing graphics work, publishing there. For two years, they tried to sell this idea of a, a sort of hip tech magazine in the United States, and nobody bought until they met Stuart Brand and his network. And they sort of helped the publication become what it is. They helped them find funding, they helped them staff it. And the the folks who they brought in were people like Howard Reingold, Kevin Kelly, Stuart Brand himself, and part of Stuart Brand's Global Business Network crew like Mitch Kapoor and and the like, uh, Esther Dyson and so on. And in the pages of Wired, the sort of implicit faith in, economics as a source of social change, in individuated technology as a source of transformation of consciousness that had animated the whole earth catalog, got married to the very particular mid-90s neoliberal moment in which Wired appeared. So Wired is multicolored, super psychedelic. I mean, you can't, I, I, when it first came out, I couldn't read it because the the, the text was printed across these <laughs> you know, waves of color. And, it, you know, people used to say, if you asked an executive who had Wired magazine on his coffee table why he had it, he said, well, I don't actually read it, but, you know, it says I'm cool, right? And, and it, so that's kind of what it did. And I, I just was, was sort of baffled by that. But it was not just psychedelic. It was a transformation of the earlier communal mission to build a new world into a new economic setting. And it, it was very comfortable embracing folks on the right. You know, Newt Gingrich made the cover of Wired magazine.
0: shocked me because, like, as a kid in the 90s, I always assumed when I passed Wired on the newsstand that it must be at least left leaning given its aesthetic. (laughs) <laughs> but right. not, not at all right.
1: Not at all and, and, and that point is super So I, that's how I started this whole project right? I got a 1997 copy of, of the of the Wire magazine back in 1997 And it had a picture of what looked like the whole earth on it and I'm like, wait a minute I thought this stuff was supposed to be left And it's to the right But, but Daniel, the, the, the part of you that expected that to be left Is I think one of the, the reasons that we're all so confused right now The psychedelic part of the counterculture was not left This is really important. The new left was left. The psychedelic part of the counterculture was about turning away from politics entirely. And in that sense, it set the stage for people like Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich did not like the sexuality of the counterculture. He did not like the drug use. But he was completely down with the business orientation, the technology focus, the the libertarian individualist ethos. All those were entirely congenial to Newt Gingrich.
0: And Newt Gingrich was congenial to— Wired, which made the new right into cool revolutionaries conquering a new frontier, the leading edge of a techno-libertarian market populism in a world where old economic rules were, at least ostensibly, obsolete.
1: Yep, that's exactly right. I think there's one thing that's interesting to note in the context of where we ended up much later with Trump and and that world is the the one thing that was sort of missing from Wired that has gone on to afflict us was the, the sort of authoritarian Christian right. I think that's really interesting. The the right that we see in Wired magazine is the neoliberal right. It's 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 conservative, and, and you know, English will go to work for Trump later, but it, it isn't yet married to the evangelical world, and it isn't culturally as constrained or constricting as it would later become.
0: One thread throughout your book is how the whole Earth network heroized certain figures as the real protagonists of history. And for the computer scene, that figure was the hacker. Who was the hacker, and how did it take shape as this figure that somehow reconciled an outlaw ethos with ascendant corporate power?
1: <laughs> well, the hacker, you know, the hacker as a as a named character didn't exist in the whole Earth world until the first Hackers Conference of 1984. Um, and that's when the Stephen Levy book, Hackers, came through Kevin Kelly to Stuart Brand, and Brand hosted an event. But I think the hacker as a as a as a sort of outlaw figure was prefigured by the outlaw nomad we were talking about earlier. You know, he is now with computers what the outlaw nomad was supposed to be in the 60s, the cowboy, the freedom seeker, sitting around the electronic campfire, just being himself and attacking, you know, in fantasy at least, mainstream institutions and organizations. And what you see at the first hackers conference is that people who were starting companies, selling products, building software would call themselves hackers in celebration of their kind of of their 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 personal skill set and their entrepreneurial ethos.
0: And sort of Benjamin they, Franklin-esque tinkerer.
1: Precisely, right. Approach. Exactly. Franklin Franklin esque, exactly. That's exactly right. And then because of the presence of Stuart Brand and the countercultural folks, that tinkeresqueness took on a revolutionary cast. It became cowboy-esque. It wasn't just new business. It was new business that was cool. And that's where we get the figure of the hacker. And the hacker ends up, I think, you know, legitimating people like Steve Jobs as creative individuals, when in fact they are arguably creative oligarchs. And that's a, a really important cultural move.
0: Stuart Brand famously articulated a central tension for the politics of high tech, where I think actually really only half of this formulation is famous quote on the one hand information wants to be expensive because it's so valuable the right information in the right place just changes your life on the other hand information wants to be free because the cost of getting it out is getting lower and lower all the time so you have these two fighting against each other how did brand the whole earth network wired the whole internet, techno-utopian scene that emerged. How did they reconcile that tension?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure they reconciled it in their own, in their own work. My guess is that they were more happy to let it live side by side and to, to try to give voice and power to the communities that were, were around them. In their writing and in their events, I think they offered the for-profit world of technology development as an emblem and as evidence of the success of the information-wants-to-be-free, cybernetic, systems-oriented, countercultural, outside-the-economy, outside-politics fantasy of the 1960s. I, I think they, they, they made it seem that hackers and computers were the true descendants of the counterculture, able to do the things that they had not been able to do earlier, and in that sense should be read as progenitors of the notion of free information that could circulate everywhere, of freedom itself. Meantime, of course, the people who were being depicted as the bringers of freedom through technology uh, were also seeking and making extraordinary profits. So let let me just step back and say that I have very mixed feelings about the Whole Earth Network. There's a lot in the lives of these folks I really admire. I'm also very aware that all of them have made a living and made their way in the world at a time when a lot of different forces were conflicting. And so, I've been taken to task at times for being too kind to Brand, and I'm I'm warming up to being kind to him again. (laughs) Or not. I, I still can't quite let myself accept the fact that maybe one of the things that happened at Wired was a conscious or unconscious pulling of a certain blanket of the counterculture story over the fact of a fairly rapacious, aggressive... Industrial explosion, and maybe that's right. I don't know. Was
0: there a left or more radical flank of this internet scene that, that rejected computer technology being either monopolized in corporate hands or used for surveillance by the state? Did these mid-century criticisms launched by people like Lewis Mumford survive within the world of the internet? Because weirdly, the Wired scene adopted the cyberpunk image, but cyberpunk literature was often really dystopian.
1: Yeah, I, I'll dispute that on the cyberpunk literature. I, I think it was dystopian in some ways, but thrilling in others. And, the, and it was a thrilling dystopia. That, that my favorite example of this is, is actually Neuromancer, the book in which the term cyberspace was coined. On the one hand, yes, it's a corporate managed dystopia in which people are, are cyborgs being plugged into corporate agendas literally through their bodies. On the other hand, if you have a particular mindset, you think, wow oh my God, I can be like plugged in and amplified and fly around. This is incredible. And so I, I I think that for some in the tech world, the dystopian part may have faded away. You know, think about your, I don't know how, what it was like for you to watch the movie Mad Max. I watched the movie Mad Max and I thought, wow, I would love to ride around in one of those cars. And, you know, and, and it is a dystopia, but it's a dystopia that gets played out every year at Burning Man. There is a Thunderdome that gets built every year by a camp called Death Camp, you know? and And so- I don't know. I, I, I think it might be dystopian on the surface, but offer a lot of pretty attractive possibilities to, to, to engineers. But, but to your other question, yes, there's absolutely a, a resistant part of the computer world. And there's some key figures there. Richard Stallman, I think, is a really important one and who does not get his due. He came up with the GNU system, the idea of copyleft. Um, he was based at MIT. Um, he's an early hacker there. I think he's been very influential. I think um, another person who is not as widely known as he should be is a man named Phil Agri, who was my first professor in this area and um, wrote something called the Red Rock Eater Newsletter in, in the late 90s and early aughts, where he thought very hard about the social implications of computing. There are a variety of others. There have been protesters all the way along. There's a book called Computer Power and Human Reason that attempts to address some of these issues. There have been protests all the way along. What I don't see... Is a concerted effort to push back on computing as its and immer- in, in the forms that computing is taking in the way that there's been a concerted effort to marry former social movements like the counterculture to the development for profit of these industries. I, I just don't I don't see that at all.
0: It's been 15 years since your book was published, and so once again, I'm very impressed that you remember so much of it. <laughs> but. I want to talk about some of what has happened since, which it turns out is quite a lot. To start, is our oligopolistic domination by the big five that we have today, Alphabet, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, is that what the whole Earth network envisioned and wanted and what the wired world wanted? Did they want this world of record high, of tech-dominated record high inequality, a reality where we're surveilled by government and capitalists alike, where we exist within this twisted set of incentive structures where we're all refreshing our our mentions all the time, like gambling addicts playing the slots that has teenagers falling into depression because no one liked their Instagram post. Is Is this it, what they wanted, or did it turn out differently?
1: I don't think they could have imagined that this is the way that it would go. I think their focus was much more local and much more self-centered. Remember that the the mission of the of the comprehensive designer was to improve his own life and the lives of those immediately around themselves. And you know, embedded in the hippie ethos was, "I'm going to make my commune, and my commune will be a shining emblem to the rest of the world." But I don't actually have to worry about the rest of the world because I'm just busy building my commune. I think they had a different vision of what they hoped it would become. And, and I actually have a, a wonderful poem in front of me, which I, I think we should read. It's all watched over by Machines of Loving Grace, uh, written by Richard Brautigan, who was a hippie poet. And he used to walk around the Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco in 1967, selling this poem. And I think this poem captures the world that the folks associated with the Whole Earth Network hoped we would live in. I think they, would, they hoped that we would live not in a world that was dominated, but, but something more like this. And let me read it. It's only three stanzas, but it's pretty good all watched over by machines of loving grace. I like to think, and the sooner the better, of a cybernetic meadow where mammals and computers live together in mutually programming harmony, like pure water touching clear sky. I like to think right now, please, of a cybernetic forest filled with pines and electronics where deer stroll peacefully past computers as if they were flowers with spinning blossoms. I like to think it has to be of a cybernetic ecology where we are free of our labors and joined back to nature, returned to our mammal brothers and sisters, and all watched over by machines of loving grace. Wow. I think the vision embedded, yeah, it's, a, it's an incredible poem. I think the, the vision embedded in that poem is, is one in which, you know, there might be large tech corporations, but in which they would behave like a mother and a father and, and produce a world that blends together the technical and the natural rather than rapaciously eats energy, rapaciously sucks up cold water, rapaciously mines the social world. The, The hippies of the counterculture, the hippies of the new communalist movement believed that business was better than politics. And ironically, they helped us, I think, at least legitimate and maybe build a world in which certain kinds of businesses like Facebook, like Apple, like Google, are becoming quasi-political entities of their own, almost almost global state forces. Uh, for that reason, I, th- I think it's time for us to turn back to the forgotten lessons of the new left. Uh, I think that's where the action really is. And ironically, if you look back at the 60s and these two countercultures, you see that it was the new communalists who had the greater impact over time, I would argue. But it's the new the new left and the need to do politics, to change politics, whose legacy we really need to reinvigorate.
0: You know, you said that, the new communalists had the greater impact. But what we what we really need is the legacy, a revival of the legacy of the new left. And that is, I think, indeed what's happening with the Bernie Sanders campaigns and the rise of DSA and the rise of tech worker organizing led by young leftists, many of whom I think are members of DSA.
1: Yeah, I really agree with that. And I, I'm, I'm unbelievably excited to see that. You know, it's a little harder for me to see that movement here in Silicon Valley. <laughs> where I, I'm probably, my social world is probably more centered around people who know Peter Thiel than it is around people who are in the DSA, which is unfortunate. I would like that to change. Uh, I, I want to flag two people, Ben Tarnoff and Moira Weigel, both based in Boston, who have written extensively on the, on the left that you're describing, as well as on Peter Thiel. And, uh, you know, they're just doing incredible work, making that new world visible. With Logic and in Magazine, ways,
0: which is excellent. Logic
1: Magazine. Yep, Logic Magazine is absolutely fabulous, precisely. And I want to flag flag their, their achievements. Um, also, Astra Taylor, I think she's been doing some terrific work in this area, I'm, I'm very gratified to see that. I remain concerned that there's an ethos that's still out there on the left as on the right that believes that the essence of democracy is the freeing and amplifying of the individual voice. You know, when I, when I, and I, I just think that's not true. The essence of democracy is not the freedom to speak, it's the freedom to be heard. And the, where democracy lives, in my view, is in representation rather than direct democracy. And, and I think DSA would have to agree with me on this. What we need to be strengthening are our representative institutions. And we can be building those in a more socialist direction. I would love to see that. Uh, what I worry about is a, is a legacy, I think, from the counterculture. And when I think back about Occupy and I think about how we on the left claimed the term, we are the 99%. That's great. We did that. We vocalized that. We expressed that. We presented ourselves to the media and they saw us say that. And we got the meme. Good for us. Meantime, the right was taking Congress. And I think that one of the hangovers from the 60s on the left is is a persistent faith in technology enabled expression as a source of social change. We do not need to enhance our expressive abilities. We need to strengthen the institutions that turn our expressions into representations and give us the power to negotiate across our very complex differences.
0: Without a doubt, I think that Occupy was very much a manifestation of a lot of this countercultural ideology about personal self-expression, even though overall it was obviously a net benefit and there'd be no boom and DSA yeah, and like, Bernie yeah. campaign, but the things right. that it got wrong in terms of believing that just individual expression um, organized in in total horizontality could transform society. I mean, that didn't work out because when you pretend to have a horizontal organization, what actually happens is you have unacknowledged leaders running stuff behind the scenes who are less accountable than if you have a formal organization with acknowledged leaders who you can hold accountable.
1: Yeah, you just described the communes. I mean, that's exactly right. And and that's the that's the legacy. I mean, you also just described Facebook. <laughs> you know, when you think about Facebook, we, we think about it as a technology that we use on our desktops. We don't tend to think of the two we don't tend to think about the two the two two-part stock structure that gives Mark Zuckerberg permanent lifetime individual singular control over every single decision in the firm. That that's just not something we tend to think out loud about. And And you're right, so so this this is the thing that I, I think we need to get past, which is the, the the fantasy that leveled horizontal networks will free us, and that the true enemy is bureaucracy institutions. That's just not the case. I, I like to think about Max Weber a lot. You know Max Weber you know was a big fan of bureaucracy. He said, "Look, you know bureaucracy is where people leave their personal allegiances and personal ties behind and act more or less honestly in relation to a role they are assigned. I think that's very valuable. Now, I've been to the DMV, too. I know what that's like, you know, but even so, we need a world where we can negotiate our differences, negotiate our resources, and that requires rules and representative institutions. And yeah,
0: people have no doubt soured on tech in many ways. There are previously unimaginable antitrust attacks from both the left and the right As the series Black Mirror demonstrates, so much of our technologized reality feels like a a nightmare to many of us. Yet, on the other hand, Elon Musk, who to me seems like a textbook comic book villain, is to many a god. And millions look to crypto for the promise of personal liberation through decentralization, even as the virtual mining of crypto requires just massive amounts of literal material energy. And young people look to subordinate position through through day trading or engaging in collective short squeezes. What, 15 years after f- publishing this book, what's the state of techno-utopianism? It seems complicated.
1: Yeah, I think that techno-utopianism may have faded. That is to say, the faith that technology will save us may have faded. Um, there's certainly been a lot of work trying to help it fade. What hasn't faded are the things that you've just pointed to, the deep American faith in the individual as the source and site and object of social change, and the, the strange blindness among those of us who study technology and, and its heroes or, or spend time around it toward capitalism, toward institutions, toward the corporation. You know, I, I'm not convinced that, that technology is necessarily good, necessarily bad. I do think there are affordances of particular technologies that have particular effects that tend one way or the other. But I, I think that even in the contemporary anti-utopian moment, we're missing some of the really big stuff. You know, Just to take an example, Facebook is constantly critiqued, as is Google and other, other spaces, for manipulating our experience, for nudging us, for, for manipulating our psyches. I, I don't like that either. I don't like that at all. But I think that misses the larger point, which is that Facebook as a corporation is surveilling and um, creating records of and retailing patterns of interaction that are social in nature. They are individuating our experience of media in ways that make it much harder for us to collaborate. And and in both of those ways are corroding our democracy. The the problem is a corporation corroding democracy. The problem is not a technology changing our minds. The, The deep thing that I think we continue to miss is that the we miss it from the counterculture forward. The individual is not the site or the source of the problem. We have structural problems. We have institutions in play. They are shaping our individual experience. And until we as Americans develop a language of critique appropriate to what's actually going on, we're going to keep getting beat down.
0: You write about how the techno-utopians ignored the materiality behind high tech. Their vision had no place for the armies of iPhone manufacturing workers laboring in Shenzhen or... E-waste recyclers working across the global South in really dangerous conditions. And thinking about that, reading your book, it seems like Kevin Kelly almost perhaps seemed to subconsciously concede that there was nothing remotely horizontal going on about the relationship between labor and capital. He said, quote, the principles governing the world of the soft, the world of intangibles, of media, of software, And of services will soon command the world of the hard, the world of reality, of atoms, of objects, of steel and oil, and the hard work done by the sweat of the brow. That was the one quote in your book that seemed to suggest that they knew that the materiality wasn't going away, just that it was about a new system of power that they would be at the top of. Does that seem right?
1: I think it's, it's, it's right in general and wrong in, in the specifics. Let me see if I can get, get into it. But I think that is right in, in, the broad, in broad strokes. The, the trouble is, and this is something I've seen a number of times, as I've spent time with a variety of different kinds of people who have jobs that do great harm, I've found that they also have ways of managing and discounting the knowledge of the harm they're doing. The first community that I ever spent time with was a, a lot of soldiers. I spent a lot of time with veterans writing my, my book on the Vietnam War. And You know, one of the things that veterans have to do is if they've been in the battlefield, struggle with um, the violence they've committed or seen and rationalizing that and making sense of it. When they're on the battlefield, it's, it's a different animal. And likewise, I think here, we have a situation where it's a lot easier, more personally profitable, less confusing, more palatable, to think of yourself as the builder of a human adventure, a leader on a new frontier, than it is to think of yourself as a despoiler, as a miner, as a as a as a kind of social as a as a crisis in the social, social ecology, and that's something that's been true of of everyone who's who's done <laughs> damaging corporate work. I mean, it's true. It was true of Henry Ford. It was true of the of Andrew Carnegie, and it's true of of this current crop of, of, of folks. You know, I had an experience a, a while back that I think might, might be on point here. I, I, back in 2006, 2007, I spent some time around Google news and that was a time when people at Google were using the phrase don't be evil right. very, very explicitly and directly. And so I was sitting around this and I, I watched, I spent, I was there for a while uh, off and on over a period of time. And I watched as don't be evil gave rise to the question, well, what's good? Well, what providing information is good. Well, who provides information? Oh, oh, Google provides information. And suddenly there's a kind of morph into don't be evil becomes do what's good for people, which becomes do what's good for Google. And I think that morph characterizes a lot of folks in this world. You know, Stuart Brand has a long history of of, 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 being, of, of celebrating ecology. He has some interesting ideas about bringing back defunct species. I think that the world that you're describing is probably pleased with its elite status and carefully not thinking about its costs.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not just the material backbone of high tech, but also how technology has been applied or sort of invoked to transform the nature of capital labor relations in general. In particular, since your book was published, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash have mastered the use of apps to misrepresent their workers as contractors. And so the great innovation is supposed to be making it easy to hail a cap. But the real business model is casualizing driver labor, thinking about the relationship between the, the raw economics and the, the ideology, both in this case that I just mentioned, but also in general throughout your book. Is this techno utopian ideology? Does it exist and persist because it's functional in terms of what it obscures?
1: I think it's, yes, I think think it does exist and persist. I think it it is, and that one reason is that it is functional because of what it obscures, absolutely. And it keeps our eyes on the independence of the the pseudo-independence of the driver and off the lobbying of companies like Uber. But I think it's also important to to recognize the ways in which it gives voice to a, a real longing and a real need in our lives that's deeply American and that predates the advent of technology. Shoshana Zuboff, whose book, Surveillance Capitalism, I really admire, talked about how companies like Facebook were capturing our innermost expressive needs, our our desire to be social humans. And I think that's right. And I think the techno-utopian dream of technology-enabled individual freedom speaks directly to a deep American dream of individual freedom. And I think that there's a way in which it doesn't just obscure the predation of corporations, which it does but it also gives a language to people who dream different dreams. And that's one of the roots, I think, of the of the, the, the celebration of Elon Musk. I think that people can worship Elon Musk as a hero when they are dreaming of having a kind of independence they don't have. And that, that too is one of the functions of ideology. Ideology doesn't just obscure power, it offers dreams of alternatives. And I think techno-utopianism persists in part because it continues to offer a dream of an alternative that is deeply consonant with the American communal Puritan past.
0: What do you make of this emergence of new forms of of property like cryptocurrency? And most recently, the advent of non-fungible tokens or NFTs. <laughs> I find it absolutely confusing and like deeply disturbing for some reason. I find it like really disturbing, but I don't really have any useful framework of how to analyze what it means about the present moment.
1: Yeah, it doesn't bother me very much, actually, the NFTs. You know, I, one of the things that I'm, I'm studying at the moment is the 1980s art world when the art world in New York met finance. And it's, it's fascinating. You see in that period, as you do with the NFT, a sudden flocking toward particular artists or particular yeah. styles. and. You know, when I, when I see the NFTs, I see, I see tulips. You know? yeah. <laughs> it reminds me so much of the tulip craze. You know, sure, great. Spend $18 million on a on a collection of NFTs. That's great. Parenthetically, I happen to like the art, but that's a whole other separate, <laughs> separate thing. Bitcoin is different. B- Bitcoin, I think there's, if you ask me what's really changed since the Counterculture book, what I think is, has changed is, I guess, two things. One, the individualism of the counterculture has made it possible for a kind of chaotic individualism to take hold across multiple societies via the internet, via the disaggregation of media, and that that has has opened the door to a kind of authoritarianism that we don't have a name for yet. It's not massified, it's highly individuated, it's urban, it's Trump, and it's terrifying that's one piece. It's a long story there. I've just told it quick and dirty. But um, the other thing that I see going on that, that really intrigues me and that I don't have a language for quite yet is the emergence of global corporate and state actors and fused global and state actors empowered with technology, building systems that transcend states. So I'm thinking now of Facebook as a global power. I'm thinking of various Chinese systems for managing their social world in China, which is such a huge nation, it might as well be multiple nations. And I'm thinking of Bitcoin as, in an odd way, a kind of populist play in that emerging global governance space. I don't know how to think about it beyond that, but I do find that really interesting. I'm starting to see these structures emerge. I'm seeing companies like Facebook or Palantir collaborate with states while also in some ways co opt them. That really intrigues me. There's something aborning out there, and I'm not sure what it is.
0: The whole Earth crew rejected politics, but politics did not ignore the internet at all. On the one hand, tech has revolutionized small-dollar donations to power campaigns like that of Bernie Sanders. It's helped all kinds of people organize mass protests in all sorts of countries, something that got a lot of attention around five years ago, I guess. On the other hand, the internet has abetted Genocidal campaigns in Burma It's become a became a key tool for the real Donald Trump to bypass fake news. We've seen New Age yoga gurus on Instagram promoting QAnon and the promise that Trump would deliver a great awakening. QAnon, of course, began on a trolling Internet message board. We see anti-vaccine conspiracism in Facebook groups, YouTube algorithms feeding people into the far right. Interestingly, all this sort of anti-elite, anti-science politics forming in the very sorts of networks <laughs> that are supposed to, yeah, I guess bolster, bolster a technocracy. Mm-hmm. What what does it mean that this is what the networked future turned out to
1: look like? Well, that's a big question. I only have a, a small answer, but I'll, I'll I'll venture it nonetheless. I think with the in, I think we hold the internet responsible for a little too much. I think the technology itself has dramatically accelerated cultural collisions that were already ongoing, and it's 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 put fuel on a lot of fires. I think a lot about the way in which there's a sort of forced cosmopolitanization going on. It's been going on since the television era, maybe even radio, where folks in different worlds are forced to confront entirely different ways of living, entirely different ethoses. You know, imagine what it would be like to be a member of the Afghani Taliban, and to encounter a female soldier. Now, whether you think one way of life is better or not, either way you do it, you've got a cultural collision of the first order. One of the things that the internet does is make possible cultural collisions of the first order. Nothing the internet does is it makes it possible to enter story worlds incredibly easily. You don't have to go through the work of buying a book or picking up a magazine. You can enter a fantasy world like QAnon, make yourself a hero, even make yourself a costume like that buffalo, buffalo-horned buffalo guy at... at, at you know, at the Capitol,
0: the Q shaman,
1: the Q shaman, exactly. (laughs) You can make yourself the Q shaman. And, and, I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? Right. I mean, you know, it, it it beats dressing up like Kirk on Star Trek. Um, So, so I see those forces, but again, I think we've got our eye on the wrong ball. I think those, those are important. What we're not doing, what we're not holding to account when we say the internet is the problem, what we're we're repeating the the way of thinking that animated the counterculturalists and the founders of the internet in the first place It's a way of thinking that says the technology is the center of the problem, as it could have been the center of the good change, and that individuals are both the victims and the agents of of the changes that we see. What we're missing, what we're not doing, is holding to account Facebook and Twitter and Google. You know, Facebook describes itself as a neutral technological platform, It lo- lobbied for, as, as did other firms, um, Section 230, which, which prevents them from being held to account as broadcasters, I think that's a dramatic misreading of what Facebook is. I think Facebook is essentially a many-to-many broadcaster. Just the fact that many people speak to many other people doesn't change that. People need ways to hold one another to account on these systems. If we simply let them run wild, well, that's on us. Those are things that we can legislate. Those are ways, there are modes of ownership we can change. The questions and the solutions to the problems we face are not technological. They're institutional. They're regulatory. They're corporate. Um, We've got to turn our attention away from the marvel of the devices and back toward the companies who make the choices about how those devices are going to be deployed.
0: Then lastly, I want to address the politics of Silicon Valley itself. There are plenty of rich Democrats. There are socialist tech workers organizing unions. And there's also, of course, this more reactionary strain that we can see in Peter Thiel, James Damore, perhaps Slate Star Codex. What is the political and ideological balance of forces in tech right now? And what sort of history are these various strains drawing on?
1: Um, I, think, I think there's a variety, and, and I think we pay a lot of attention to the to the extremes. We pay attention to Peter Thiel, Slate Star, uh, Star Codex, those worlds. What's interesting to me about Silicon Valley is that it has been for a very long time majority Democrat, and still is. It's also a place where 40% of the citizens were not born in the United States. I find that amazing. It's a place where there are 36 billionaires, with a B, and where 3 in 10 children are food insecure. So it's it's a microcosm, I think, of a lot of things that are in, in in America. And when we talk about tech, I think we tend to overrepresent the voices of people, people like Peter Thiel or Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, the very visible leaders who tend to believe some pretty wacky stuff and often quite pernicious stuff. We tend to underestimate the voices of the middle-of-the-road Democrats who, in fact, are the majority in Silicon Valley and who genuinely want to build a more diverse, tolerant, reasonable society. And when we talk about the politics of the Valley, I think we we tend to really be talking about, about the politics of the Valley's leaders, not the Valley itself. And when we look at the Valley itself, it's a slightly more encouraging picture.
0: Well, Fred Turner, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really glad to be here.
0: Fred Turner is a professor of communication at Stanford University and the author of from Counterculture to Cyberculture, Stuart Brand, The Whole Earth Network, and The Rise of Digital Utopianism. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, it is not the workmen that employs the instruments of labor, but the instruments of labor that employ the workmen. While other podcasts heavily interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Izzy Olive. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at TheDigRadio.com. Follow us on Twitter at TheDigRadio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it is on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a glowing review preferably not one of those reviews complaining about a really minor audio issue from a recent interview you know who you are anyhow those reviews when they're good help introduce us to new listeners but what really does that is you telling your friends please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation going strong even a few bucks a month is huge